Ryman, host of Audibly Speaking, a show on the stories behind the stories of our time. By sounding out on these stories, we give voice to them and hear them for the first time. From the news of the day to history and literature, from audiobooks to leaders on the stump, we examine the backstories of our time, audibly speaking. On the program today, I have the good fortune to talk to the host of Spinster's Library on YouTube, a much-needed exemplar of social media's power for good, which we too seldom hear about. While so many vloggers on YouTube fill the cloud with high-tech and funny animal videos, our guest, whose name is Claudia, broadcasts from the UK and now Germany, enlightening us in snappy videos of less than 15 minutes each, why the classics of English literature, and especially Victorian literature, are worthy of the adjective and of our attention. Let me just say that there are lots and lots of talented raconteurs who hold forth on YouTube. But I think Claudia and her channel, Spinster's Library, are special. You can't listen to a single video of hers without realizing that she shows how a book from the 19th century and literature generally can tell us more about ourselves than can a psychiatrist or a mirror. Indeed, the stories of classic literature are mirrors into our souls, as she deftly shows in her videos. She will explain her channel further, as well as its catchy title, Spinster's Library. Well, thank you for uh, being my guest on my podcast, uh, Claudia. Thank you for having me. Uh, you had the idea of creating a YouTube channel, and you identified an audience. How did all that unfold so this was uh this was almost exactly four years ago now actually um i was already watching book related content on youtube um, also known as booktube so i've always been a reader i've always been interested in books and i started watching several channels on youtube that uh, that spoke about books and uh, then i met a, a friend Called Charlie at university. We're both at the same university, and we um, we actually met through a feminist book club at the university. That book club, unfortunately, didn't go anywhere. It kind of fell apart after two meetings. But she and I got on, and we started talking about books. You know, lending each other books and having conversations mm -hmm. about what we were reading. And so I suggested that we do a YouTube channel together. Uh, we nearly did a podcast actually, but then we settled on a YouTube channel in the end. And we called that spinsters, library spinsters, plural, yes. because we, we felt like, you know, we got together usually at my house and uh, drank tea and we felt like two old ladies talking about books. So <laughs> that's that's how that came came about. So we made a few videos together. You know, I would film the videos and edit them and upload them. And she came over to to discuss books and stuff with me. So that went on for a while and then she kind of, she wasn't really into that and uh, so I decided to continue on my own after she wasn't interested in continuing the channel with mm -hmm. me after a few months. Right. Or did you post videos of the two of you on YouTube? Yes, yes. The, uh, the first three months or so of uh, Spencer's Library are with oh, time. Okay, and they're still there, right? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay. Now. I happened to watch the video with you and your husband 
where you talk about your decision to leave the UK and go to Germany. And uh, it, it occurred to me that when you were in the UK, you probably were, were trying to make, a, make this a business as well as a, a, a hobby. Is that right? You mean the, the channel? Yeah, the channel. I wouldn't go so far. It is kind of a hobby that is now making a bit of income on the side, which is nice. But um, the video about the European Union, about yes. our decision to leave yes. the UK and move back to Germany, where where I'm originally from and where my husband has also previously lived with me, um, that is a prime example of the sort of video that um, I made because I wanted to talk about a certain issue rather than because I thought it might appeal to people. Because the, the people who subscribe to my channel do it for the book talk. So when I make videos about politics, for example, um, I know that either it's, it's not going to get watched by many people at all, or the other thing, the thing that happened with that specific video is that it gets popular outside of the booktube bubble. So it gets popular with people who aren't subscribed to my channel who will never be interested in my usual content but who see that video recommended to them because they watch other political content. And I try and limit that now because it always brings a great deal of trouble because, uh, you know, lots of negative comments oh, and uh, okay. wild assumptions and things like that. So I, I don't tend to do that a lot mm. anymore. But, um, yeah, well, that, that's a shame. That's yeah. a shame because... Uh, I thought it was fascinating. And uh, one of the most interesting points you made was that Europeans and, Engl and people in England don't know what the European Union is all about. And uh, that astonishes my American students. They don't know what it's about either, but they expect Europeans to know. Uh, and so, uh, I mean, I, I, I thought that was very, very good and, and kind of unusual for a dedicated channel to do, to go outside the boundaries. And you say that, that, that people who don't uh, watch Spinster's Library encounter that video, uh, what, when they're searching for European Union or something? I assume it's to do with the YouTube algorithm. So okay. I think most of the people will have it suggested to them on the front page. And, uh, and then click on the video because they watch similar content. And when I talk about people not knowing what the European Union, what the European Union is about, I obviously count myself among those people as well. Though I think as a German, I have a better understanding of it yeah. than a lot of people in the UK, um, especially since the UK, even while it was still a member of the EU, uh, the, the atmosphere there, the way that they see themselves as part of Europe is completely different to mm -hmm. how mm -hmm. Germans see themselves as part of Europe. Oh, and obviously you will, have, you will have a much more <laughs> academic understanding of yes. the, the yeah. political institution that is the EU. But uh, for someone who grew up in it, it's very much a part of, of life. You know, it's not mm -hmm. just a political institution. It is... Um, I guess, you know, we have it on our passports. It's a symbol of freedom of movement, of, of this idea that I can go right. anywhere right. within the EU. And I remember um, I remember the time before the euro yeah. currency was introduced. And even even the sort of unified currency has made has, has brought Europe closer together in a way that I don't think British people will ever truly understand unless they live in the EU. Mm -hmm. um, 
and and experience it for themselves. So obviously that was a very controversial video, and I'm a very political person. You know, I'm, I'm very outspoken about my politics right. uh, on on my Twitter and also within the context of my book discussions. Well, um, you have yeah. a banner that says, "Well, reader, reader and, and feminist." Feminist. Yes. That's right, uh, yes. Okay, so so that's that's great. That and and so the European Union video is tied up with that. Uh, and so uh, I would like to see more of those other subjects that might seem to be tangential, but that really are not. Yeah, well, actually, I, I do have a second channel as well, on which I specifically made to talk about political contents, but that has become a lot less fun. So it's only got a handful of videos on it because the comment mm -hmm. section is, I'm not going to swear on your podcast, but it is, it's a disaster. Uh, the comment section, you know, it, it, it takes a lot of energy to moderate that and to constantly read kind of oh, oh. all sorts of nonsense. Right. I, I, I know what you're, you're saying, uh, because, uh, it's almost traumatic, I suppose. Um, but what strikes me is I would almost die for that problem because I have a uh, posting place on every web page on my website. I have over 10,000 clicks, but I don't know uh, if they listen to the entire podcast or even more than a minute, and uh, they certainly don't post. So I'm just fascinated that you, you do get such re responses. Maybe you, the YouTube community is much larger or something. Uh, uh, I I don't know. I don't know. But if if you think you have a special formula for getting visitors to your channel, let me know. It's the YouTube algorithm. The more controversial a video is, the more political. The more oh. you know. The more YouTube thinks it can get a reaction out of people with a certain video the more likely people are to see it. Uh, for example, on my second channel, I made two videos called 10 Things I Love About Britain oh, yes. and 10 Things I Hate About Britain. Right, right. And I, I published the love video first, mm -hmm. um, but the hate video is the one that gets the attention and the comments and the discussion because people like negativity and mm -hmm. people like, uh, like to have something to argue against. So if I make a video talking about how I, um, you know, about my experiences living in Britain, then people just love commenting under it. Oh, we didn't want you anyway, or, you know, go away, go back to where you came from, that kind of stuff. People love commenting that and the YouTube algorithm algorithm picks mm. up on that. Whereas podcast mm. doesn't, right. it's not as well suited to discussion, I think, between the host and the audience. Well, so perhaps then... you should start putting your podcast on YouTube. Right. I, well, I actually have started doing it. I, I, I uh, watched your video on, on. Uh, I don't know if you can see this, but I watched oh, your video. <laughs> <laughs> I watched your video on on how you uh, create lighting and, and things, and so I just got that. But, but then I'm still a little curious as to why you're. Is this a public service you're doing for people in terms of Spencer's Library? I mean. In terms of Spencer's library, you want to get the word out about these books and these stories. Is that why you're doing it? Because you're not doing it uh, to make money primarily. I mean, let's let's say 
um, if you want to make money with YouTube, talking about books is not the right <laughs> genre to go down. Um, and I know this because I've I've made one or two video about uh, one or two videos about uh, technology, and yeah. I can tell you those pay well. Oh, <laughs> but oh, the book okay. videos do not. No, I just love talking about books, and I don't okay. have um, people in my everyday life who will talk about right. books with me. So my husband isn't much of a reader. And uh, we have great discussions about, for example, politics. In fact, if I could get him to join me on a podcast about current affairs, I would oh. absolutely do that. We have fantastic discussions about these things. Yeah, I, but, I uh, can tell. Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a great talker. But um, as for the book content, it's just uh, I, I enjoy the discussion. But also I've learned to enjoy the creative process of actually making the videos. Mm -hmm. So that has become a hobby in itself. My early videos were very unedited, uh, very kind of just a, a means to an end, a means mm -hmm. to talk about books. But I now really enjoy the process of making a video, the technical aspects of editing it, cutting it, you know, and enjoying that as a creative pursuit in itself. Right, right. I noticed that some of your videos are scripted, but uh, you do a good job of, of making it seem not scripted, you know, in terms of your delivery. Um, and, uh, and sometimes I can't tell. So that's the goal, I guess. Thank you. Thank yeah. You. <laughs> yeah. I, I know that you talked about notes. In fact, I have a question here that I sent you um, on your use of notes. I wonder if you can explain how you make the transition from a few words on the on the paper to a presentation that seems spontaneous and free-flowing. Do you spend a lot of time before the recording starts uh, trying to memorize what you're going to say, or how does that work? No. Uh, I mean, you, you're, you're an academic as well, so yes. you know the preparation that goes into giving a conference paper, for example. Right, right. And my conference papers are... I, I'm... I don't like to brag, but I'm quite good at uh, mm. at public speaking at in an academic context, and I enjoy preparing conference papers. Okay. And for those, I usually script out every single word and then practice it, and then edit the script to make it sound very natural. So I don't tend to go in for the sort of super complex academic language, which also, mm. you know, partly is because English is my second language. But um, I, I try and make my conference papers sound very natural. With YouTube videos, I rely a lot on editing. So if I have my my notes, my bullet points, uh, if something doesn't come out right, right, I know that I can repeat it and I know that I can fix it in the edit. So a lot of the a lot of the magic, as it were, happens after I've recorded the video. Uh, but then occasionally I do script a video word for word. And those videos tend to be more academic in tone as well because, well, because they are fully scripted out. So they sound like I'm giving a presentation a lot more. I don't know. It does seem a little bit like magic to me. You say that you, you want to talk about your interests and you want to have a conversation, but you don't really have a conversation on YouTube unless people post. Isn't that right? I mean, I know you have your live, you have your live productions, and that is a back and forth, isn't it? Yes, I do this very rarely because, uh, <laughs> unlike in my videos, uh, in live uh, streams, I have to be a lot more switched on, obviously, and it, it does, right. you know, they are kind of nerve wracking. Fatiguing. Um, yes, yes. But uh, the conversation happens in the comment section, and uh, also in the videos that I watch personally. You know, I. I 
yeah. get inspired by other videos that I watch and I like to comment on other people's videos. But yeah, the, the conversation, it's, it was more of a conversation when I started the channel because when you have 100 or 200 subscribers and maybe 20, 30 people who watch your videos regularly, uh, then you, you mm -hmm. actually know these people and you can right. communicate with them much easier. You know who they are. Now that my channel is uh, a lot bigger, I don't know the people who comment as much. I don't, you know, that there's hundreds of people watching, sometimes thousands, and I, I, I just could not oh, know yes. all of them. Yes. So, no, no. But you know, I, I'm gonna ask this question again because I, I still don't understand. You say that books are not the topic for YouTube if you want a large audience. You talk about books, and you have a large audience. Now, explain that. Well, please. I said <laughs> books are not the topic you choose if you want to make money. Okay. So the size of okay. the audience is not necessarily no. The size uh, of okay. The right, right, and and purely from personal interest, uh, I'm not concerned about making money. I I spend a lot of money uh, putting together this podcast, but it has no advertising whatsoever, and uh, and I have no way of making money, and that's fine. But I do hate the fact that I have no idea if I have how many subscribers I have, and I doubt if I have many. So I'm interested in uh, how you have overcome the challenge of having large numbers of subscribers when you're talking about something very important, but the people out there don't seem to understand how important it is. It seems to me, um. uh, because. You say that they're not interested in literature and all that. <laughs> Again, I'm talking about BookTube as a very small slice of the huge oh, okay. pie that is YouTube. And okay. even within okay. BookTube, there are different genres and different niches. And I very much enjoy classic literature, although not exclusively. And um, I, I think it's also a generational thing. If I look at my own analytics, I can see sort of the age of my, my audience. And it tends to be, the majority of my audience tend to be people my own age or older. And uh, perhaps that's not the main target audience of YouTube in general. Right, right. But I'm, I'm perfectly happy with, the size of, of my audience. I don't feel like I want my channel to become absolutely massive because I think that right. will up the stress factor a lot more. Yeah. Yes. So I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy with where it is at the moment, really. How many subscribers do you have again? Around, around 10,000, I think 10,500-ish. Oh, okay, okay. Um, yes, and the algorithm does get your podcasts announced or advertised to people with those interests, doesn't it? Yes. Because, yes, um, if they look up Jane Austen, for example, yours may appear on the list on the right, I suppose. Absolutely. I guess that's how it works. Yes. In fact, YouTube um, analytics tells me other channels that my viewers also watch, and the majority of them are people I'm also subscribed to, so other people who talk about the same kind of books that I do. Oh, okay. Okay, now, when I was a PhD student, uh, I would have found it very stressful to have this side uh, activity, um, especially if it causes stress in and of itself uh, from the internal dynamics. Um, 
but you you find it maybe a, a way to relieve tension or something yeah absolutely uh so you you are yeah. a history phd is that correct yes uh, yes i'm uh, in musicology and my uh, my research is very much history based so it's music history really but mm -hmm. uh you know you can't switch off the creative side completely so uh, the youtube channel happened just as i stopped performing music for my undergraduate degree um i had been focusing on performance and that was my creative outlet for a long time. Um, so when I stopped doing that, I, I needed something else to put creativity into. And, and you, my videos are exactly that. They're, they're a creative outlet and I enjoy them as such. And it's not, I have this conversation a lot because a lot of people on BookTube don't like to edit their videos. And they look mm -hmm. at my content and say, but that's way too much work to put into it. That's too overproduced, that's too much. Uh, but it gives me a satisfaction to take a raw mm -hmm. video of me stumbling over my words and saying mm -hmm. things wrong and mispronouncing things and then polish that into a right, video that's entertaining. Right. Yes, yes. It's it's like it's like a conference paper in a sense. Exactly. But for but for the masses, I suppose. Exactly. Yes, you have you have a product that that is uh, professional and more people are going to watch it if it's edited properly um, instead of stumbling around and lengthening the video unnecessarily. Although I have to say there are many talented people on BookTube who can just completely freestyle a video, no script, no edits, where you can just tell they are amazing conversationalists who just have that talent for speaking in a way that makes people want to listen to them. But I definitely need the editing <laughs> to make it that tight. <laughs> well, it doesn't show. Uh, so, uh, Spinster's Library, that was a concoction of your own, or is that some phrase that was was uh, from a, a Jane Austen novel or something? I know you, you did this because you had two people working together, uh, but it almost sounds like a phrase that uh, Dickens would have used or something. You, you, but you've made that all up yourself, huh? Yeah, we did. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it really came out of the silly idea that, hey, look at us, two spinsters talking about books. Oh, oh and, okay. And, and okay. obviously, I, now I wish I'd come up with something different because everyone asks me, well, how come you, you're married? So how can you call yourself oh, right. a spinster? Right. Well, people don't seem to point out that I also don't have a library. <laughs> but, you know, I guess... Well, you see something in the background. It's very small. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I don't even have a bookshelf oh, where I, I live now. But I, I just think that Spinster's Library has a more has a nicer ring to it than married woman's office. You know, it's, it's just doesn't... <laughs> yeah, of course. There, so. <laughs> no, it, it's great. Me. It's great. It's, I think two words... Uh, titles for channels are better than three word <laughs> titles. And you, you know, I had this question about you do these videos occasionally of how to create these videos uh, with the lights, what kind of equipment to use. And uh, I guess you're so interested in it, you decided to make a video about that. That's exactly um, it, yeah. I, I'm just, I'm interested in behind the scenes. And I'm, yeah. I'm very nosy myself, so whenever oh. I see a YouTuber I enjoy make a behind-the-scenes video, I am all over it. Whether that's oh, okay. talking about the technical aspects of it, setup, or whether that's talking about uh, comment sections, analytics, 
money, anything that goes on behind the scenes, I'm just fascinated by. And so, you know, I, I like to indulge myself in that and, and, and make yes. that sort of content too. And you also review modern um, websites or technologies. For example, your audible.com review. Um, you had at least one video on that. And, uh, and you really analyzed it uh, six ways from Sunday, you know, <laughs> uh, because you talk about, you talked about how, uh, you know, you can get the entire Stephen Fry collection of Sherlock Holmes with a single credit. And I think Amazon has actually made that impossible now, or Audible has, because, you know, they have this streaming service that's tacked on to their uh, monthly credit. And you get both at the same time, although you can just subscribe to the streaming service, which is you don't get any credits. And Sherlock Holmes now with Stephen Fry is part of the streaming service. So you can't you can't buy it anymore oh, no. with a credit because you get it anyway with the streaming okay. service. So they maybe they've had a lot of people who had been doing that and because uh, I couldn't understand why such a, a valuable uh, entry into their library was being given away on the streaming service. The Stephen so. Fry Sherlock Holmes audiobooks are fantastic. They yes. are. I, I, I don't think I'll ever want to read the Sherlock Holmes novels on paper because the, the audiobook just adds so much to them and they have these wonderful introductions between the individual yes. works. Yeah, just amazing. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've been listening to them uh, over the summer and uh, I don't know if I'll ever be able to listen to them all. I don't know if you've listened to them I all. <laughs> oh, wow, wow. Yeah, it's 45 hours, I think, uh, in total. <laughs> okay. Well, in, in fact, I am deterred by the uh, types of plot lines that Conan Doyle has, where he's in Utah and he's in various places in the world that it just, it seems like his novels on other subjects get, get brought into the Sherlock Holmes canon and I'm not interested in those subjects. That's entirely fair enough. The the entire Utah subplot of um, A Study in Scarlet, the very first yeah. Sherlock Holmes novel, I, I think every single person I know who read that without knowing about it thought they'd somehow stumbled into the wrong book. In the <laughs> half of it. No, they, in, in Sherlock Holmes terms, the, the short stories are really, I think, of higher yeah, quality yeah. than the novels, but The Hound of the Baskervilles is an excellent novel by itself. Right. If you if you've not read that one yet, um, that might be. Oh, I've I've read it. Have... I've listened to the Stephen Fry version yeah. as well. Oh yes, uh, and I was, was very interested in your your uh, video on that. Um, but it, it seems to me that one of the things I love about the Sherlock Holmes stories are the way is the way they are written, and I cannot see watching um, series on video or in movies because they're not the same. They're not Sherlock Holmes. Uh, they may have a character who reminds me of Sherlock Holmes, but uh, it's not the same. Uh, and indeed, there's a, there's a definite structure to his short stories where things happen in a certain order. And uh, that I guess that should make them less interesting, but it doesn't do that in my case. Uh, 
uh, do you agree with that, that, that you can't replicate uh, an author in a movie or, or something like that? No, I, I agree with that. And um, the Sherlock Holmes stories, they're so they're comforting in a way, you know, and I think um, uh, Conan Doyle knew that as well when he wrote them, when he wrote the familiar tropes, you get Sherlock Holmes and his pipes and Dr. Watson and his guns, and it's it's all very comforting. And yes. uh, in, in, in a film, you have to make it maybe more exciting than it is in the stories. Uh, I think like everyone around 2013 or whenever I watched the BBC adaptation, you know, the, the modernized yes. version. Yes. And yes. Um, I thought that was good as long as you didn't think about it too much. Um, and, and that's probably true for most, most of these kinds of adaptations. They're fine if yeah. you don't think about them too much. Okay. Well, that's what you want to do with a, a novel or a story. You want <laughs> yeah. you want to think about them after you've read them. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Well, he has uh, very soon after Watson starts talking, Holmes does some deducing, and that's right before he starts talking about the new uh, mystery that is he's encountering. But also, uh, the stories don't have a lot of. It seems to me they don't have a lot of violence or. Uh, terrifying horror you know and uh, that's that's all good for me uh, I don't don't need that kind of stuff but a lot of people today they want horror stories that really uh, shake them up and you're not going to get that from a, a Conan Doyle story are you no I think perhaps that is why the Hound of the Baskerville stands out a little bit more because that oh. does have aspects of that gothic the horror and the action, you know, the, the gunfight and stuff. Um, whereas a lot of the short stories are just comforting puzzles, really. Now, on a on a kind of uh, academic level, um, how do you decide what to talk about in your video reviews of stories and what to exclude? Do you just say, well, I'm, I'm going to talk about all the things that I'm interested in uh, because this is a labor of love as much as anything. It, or, or is there some other theme that you concentrate upon? So when I'm making, when I decide whether to review a book or not, the first question is, do I have enough to say about it? So I'll think about the book. Right. And if I have enough to say about it, then I'll put that on my list of videos to film. Yeah. Um, a lot of books I read and I'm just, yeah, I just think, yeah, that was fine. Or even even books that I really hated or really loved, but where I just don't fancy talking about them just because I don't feel like I have a lot to add to the discussion, don't feel like I have a lot to say about them. And and those I just don't review at all. Um, I'll, you know, I'll mark them off the list and I won't talk about them. When I find that I have enough thoughts about a book, then I will film a book review about it. So that really is the main discussion. I know before I publish a book review video whether people are going to be interested in a certain book or not, because you know which books are popular and which books right. are, are not popular. Uh, so for example, the book that I'm just uh, working on right now that I will be probably recording later today or tomorrow is a review of Cranford by Elizabeth Gaskell, which Elizabeth Gaskell is, not an obscure author by any means, but she's not one of the big Victorian authors. She's not a Dickens or a Bronte. Right. And uh, Cranford is also not her most popular work. So I will be reviewing it, but I don't expect many people to watch that video. 
But then okay. sometimes videos surprise you because sometimes, you know, maybe in two years time, that book's going to be on a high school curriculum and lots of kids are going to be searching YouTube for book reviews. You never mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. Now, I would imagine a, a large percentage of your uh, audience are women. Yes, about and... 70 or 80 percent, I think. Oh, okay. And a large percentage of the authors you talk about are women. Would you agree with that? Yes, although I haven't got statistics on that, but I do tend no. to gravitate towards female authors. Well, talk talk to me a little bit about your your uh, feminism and how it works its way into this channel. Ooh, that's oh, that's <laughs> now that is something I actually have to think about. Um, I think my feminism as a part of my almost my moral compass mm -hmm. works itself into everything. I do. Yes. And uh, that goes, you know, I, I, I try and be as intersectional as possible. Obviously, we all have our biases and our flaws, um, but it influences the way that I read books in the first place. For example, there is there are very few things that put me off a book more than a badly written female character. Mm -hmm. And perhaps I'm I pick up on those badly written female characters um more than other readers but then that will influence my opinion of a certain book mm -hmm. and that will influence mm -hmm. the way i talk about the book uh, right and it should i think so yes uh, and and similarly i know that you know me being female has uh, influenced that so for example i might not be able to pick out uh, other issues with books i might not be able to pick out racism as strongly. I remember, for example, talking about Oliver Twist in a video. And this was a fun video I did with my husband where I was reacting to negative reviews of Victorian classics. And he read out a review that pointed towards the anti-Semitic issues in Oliver Twist. And I, I listened to that and I thought, yes, actually, that reviewer has a point. There, there is some there is some serious anti-Semitic messages in Oliver Twist that I, as, as a non-Jewish person, had not picked up on. But it's being open to hear different points of view from people with different life experiences that makes you a better reader in the end, that makes you a more critical reader. And so, you know, I try and approach the way I talk about books with that kind of an open mind and you know, not perfect, obviously, but I, I think it enriches my own reading experience as well. Nobody is going to teach everything to everybody uh, through any medium, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I call myself a feminist, but I'm not a, a feminist scholar. I'm not a, a feminist academic. I'm not, you know, an right. expert on gender issues. So... Oh, right, right. Sure. I mean, I'll, I'll share a quick story. Uh, when I teach courses, uh, at some point, um, I get <laughs> a little political and I'll say, uh, how many of you are feminists? And I'll raise my hand. And uh, of course, the students will be astonished because I'm not a woman. And a lot of the women, especially in the class, will not raise their hands. Uh, and uh, they think that to be a feminist is to be a radical or uh, something worse, perhaps, I don't know, uh, in their minds. I, I, but, uh, but it just shows the conservatism that's baked in to so many of my students, uh, or, the, or the provincialism, perhaps, is a better word, 
they're just not exposed to um, a variety of ideas and uh, they, they think that some ideas are dangerous to be even contemplated and that seems to be a terrible thing when you're talking about an 18 year old. That is really fascinating. Yeah, I, I guess that depends a lot on where where you teach or what kind of crowd yes. you get in in your students. I uh, when I took my undergraduate degree in in music, um, there was one class, one module on um, pop music, and it was supposed to be like an sort of overview of pop music history, you know, academically seen, and it was taught by a lecturer who very much considered himself a feminist, and yet mm-hmm. there was only one lecture that it all touched on women in pop music and it was one lecture about Madonna and on the uh, on the listening list you know like you have a reading list in music you have mm-hmm. music you have to listen to for a certain class um out of the 50 or so pieces of music there were only two by female pop singers They're checking a box right but, I mean <laughs> You know, if you're talking pop music, which yeah. has been massively influenced by, by female right. artists, uh, it's just, it's such an oversight. And yes. it was uh-huh. one of those cases where the, the radical did come out. And I did have a little a stern word with the lecturer after class and say, listen, you can't do right. this. You can't teach a class on pop music and have about 2% of it actually be about women. I'm hoping that things have uh, have improved since you know, since I did my undergraduate degree, but I, I try and, I guess, bring a balance into, you know, whether that's booktube or whether that's my, my academia right. as well, because I think it's important. Uh, but I was interested in your ideas or insights into uh, authors we generally respect. And I think that would be a good video too. Yeah, perhaps some of my, some of my favorite classics authors, right? awful female characters you know we were talking about conan doyle yes. almost all of his women through the board are just badly written if they are oh, yes. even present in the story um right. my, one of my, my favorite victorian author oscar wilde in some of his plays he writes excellent female characters but in his novel the picture of dorian gray terrible it just oh, okay. you know entirely terrible yeah um, I think it is very possible to enjoy a work of literature and also be able to criticize it. And uh, yeah, the, the classics yes. I read specifically by male authors, a lot of them do not have well-written female characters at all. Right. But then I also made a video about uh, male authors who I think have, have a very good handle on female characters. And one who stands out is E.M. Forster. I'm not sure if you've read any any of his novels, but I find that uh, he writes women exceptionally well, you know, for oh, a man. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. Okay. I think his best female characters are probably in Howard's End, uh, in A Room with a View, and in Where Angels Fear to Tread. For example, one of his novels, uh, Morris, is a sort of... Uh, gay romance well not really a romance but it is a story about suppressed Mm -hmm. homosexuality and uh, there are very few female characters in that book and the ones that are there are there as as a as a as a tool of oppression in a way so you know in that book for example the women characters are very much in the background but then in howard's end where the main characters are two sisters uh, their lives have a wonderful richness to it. And then, you know, as characters, they are just incredibly well written. Well, I, I must confess, I don't know anything about the biography of E.M. Forster, 
but uh, so excuse my ignorance, but was was he gay? He was, but closeted. And uh, in okay. fact, his uh, Morris, the, the the gay novel, only came out uh, after he died, even though it was written okay. dec like six decades before. Okay, uh, have you uh, encountered many straight authors who are good at portraying women? Yeah, I would say, for example, Terry Pratchett. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work. I really enjoy his books. Mm -hmm. uh, I haven't read all of them. There's, there's many, many yeah. uh, Discworld uh -huh. novels. Um, but he, he's always impressed me, I think, with his female characters. Um, I'm trying to think of more examples now. I, I, like you said, I don't read that many male okay. authors. Uh, all right, all right. Well, that's, that's fascinating in and of itself. In other words, uh, you sort of wash your hands of them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I made that one video called Five Authors Who Get Female Characters Right or something, and I was struggling to remember the others. I oh, definitely okay. mentioned Ian yeah, Forster, and I mentioned Terry Pratchett in that one, and, and there were three others as well. <laughs> <laughs> I don't select the books I read based on the right. gender, even though people do accuse me of that because, you know, because of the way that my reading interests skew. I, but when I, when I'm interested in a book, uh, you mm -hmm. know, based on what I know about the book, the blurb or someone else's review, uh, then I find that more often than not, it is written by a woman. At the moment, I'm making a bit of an effort to read some, uh, some Thomas Hardy, for example, and, you know, He's a Victorian author that I hadn't read before. Yes. So yes. There, there's still lots of male authors on my on my list that I want to explore, and that you know I'm very happy to give right. them a chance, obviously. Yeah, I'm I'm just shocked at the concept, which I've never thought about, that uh, male authors, generally speaking, cannot write well about women uh, because they're male. And I'm not saying that's not true. I'm just, I, I just haven't encountered that idea. Uh, and uh, it's quite shocking to me, if, if true. I think it's just a classical case of sort of objectification. You know, perhaps um, if, if an author isn't, has an idea of women that is uh -huh. less of a person and more right, of an idea right. of whether that's, you know, uh, oh, sure. sexual objectification or mm -hmm. just not writing her as a real human being that that's very noticeable yeah i think it's an i think it's a subconscious bias i'm not yeah you know i'm not suggesting right. that uh, that male authors are these hateful creatures who don't want right. to uh, to put effort into writing women uh, but a lot of the the tropes you know when i see for example a, a female character in a book who has a half page um, rant about her looks before, mm -hmm. you know, a scene or something where a male character would have been thinking about the plot or anything else. Right. It just right. reads very self-indulgent. And oh, sure. Sure. That's very noticeable. OK, but uh, here's a theoretical question. If we ever get to a point in society where the vast majority of men really and truly have a feminist perspective towards the world. Can we assume that then men will be able to portray women as well as women authors do? 
in novels? I don't know. I think it's not a question of a man declaring himself a feminist. I think it's a question of all of us questioning our subconscious biases all of the time. You know, mm. of always wondering, you know, is there is there some sort of prejudice that's gone into a certain description or into a certain plot element or anything like that. And I I don't think maybe I maybe I have a pessimistic view of humanity, but I don't think we're that good at that. Right. And I think that human beings are flawed creatures, generally speaking, and always will be. That, and I, I'm sorry, but uh, I have a special interest in the Holocaust, for example, and in my own research. And I think it illustrates that uh, humans have good in them, but they also have bad in them, if we can oversimplify. <laughs> I think in other words, we are, we are loving creatures or capable of being loving creatures. We're also killers. Absolutely, you know? yeah. And, and, and that, those two sides are never going to be completely eliminated. And we can use that knowledge to our benefit by being very, very alert to the dangers of totalitarianism and genocide. Uh, and then we can turn it to something quite advantageous. But, but most of us do not consider that reality no. uh, when we look at the world. Yeah, and I think we would do well, especially in these times, to remember that um, yeah, that that everyone is capable of doing horrible things, rather than considering, yeah. you know, even things like um, you know, whatever sexism, racism, not consider them as other, as evil, as uh, something that's over there that I'm not a part of. But we need to recognize these things in ourselves, in order for for society to improve because like you said you know mention of the holocaust uh, the, the, it, it wasn't that an entire german nation turned evil but it was right. the i guess the normalization of these things that made it possible for the nazis to commit unspeakable acts you know as a nation well the evil that is potential in all humans came out in full display with the Germans absolutely, in the middle of the 20th century. And, and of course, I think the Germans have learned so much from that terrible uh, history. And, uh, and it's a, I, I think it's fading, but there's, all this, there's always been an attitude in the world that there's something inherent in Germans that somehow caused the Holocaust. And I think that that is terribly wrong, but it's still still alive to some extent. Yeah, I mean, I got a lot of that attitude when I was living in the UK, as you can imagine. Uh, but it is it is yeah. fading the knowledge of the Holocaust. Oh, you know, yeah. me growing up in Germany, um, any any child growing up in Germany has been to at least one concentration camp and oh, countless memorials. And my generation still got to speak to people who were alive at that time, survivors, but also people who were Germans at the time, um, you know, usually in their youth, because unfortunately there aren't many people left who were alive during the 40s. Right. So, you know, we, we, spoke, we interviewed people, we spoke to people who were there, but that is fading now as these people die out and as people don't have the direct connection to history anymore. And this is very noticeable in Germany at the moment. There's a rise in anti-Semitism just the other day. I'm not sure if that news made it to the US, but there was a, a popular German Jewish singer who was refused entry into, he wasn't allowed to check into a hotel without taking his Star of David off. 
And mm. you can imagine the waves that that made in the German media. Again, I'm not sure how much it made that story made it internationally, but it's things like that that make me think that maybe human memory is only so short. And it's kind of yeah, a very I'll, depressing absolutely. thing to hear as a historian because we like to think that our work is important and that we make a difference. Um, but perhaps oh, it's terrifying. Yeah, it's absolutely. terrifying. It's very depressing. Um, and what you said about uh, the people in the UK in that video about the your decision to go back to Germany uh, is is very much replicated here in the US where people uh, seem to have a profound ignorance about the drift to a dystopian uh, situation I don't I don't really fear a dystopian uh, future I think it's already here you know and that makes me very depressed and anxious you know <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I think for, for the past decade, I feel like we've been drifting more and more into a dystopia. It's kind of scary now when I look at the news from the UK, because over there they have all sorts of issues at the moment. Fuel shortages in this century yes. and food shortages and right. and work supply shortages. And a lot of that is to do with Brexit. But, right. but to me, it sounds absolutely terrifying just to imagine that you go to a supermarket or to a cafe and half of the items are crossed off the menu because they, they, how, how is that possible in, in a European nation in 2021? Uh, so, yeah, I think we are seeing the effects already. I agree with you there. Where do you see Spencer's library going from here? Uh, are you going to be continuing this in the for the indefinite future? As long as people are watching, I guess, you know, it's, okay. it's, it's, it's useless to pretend that I don't do this for an audience. If no one was watching, I wouldn't be uploading videos. Right. <laughs> you know, right. A certain aspect of narcissism about this. Uh, but yeah, as long as people are interested in what I have to say about books, I'm going to continue. Obviously, you know, especially as I get further into my PhD, there might come a time where I simply don't have the time to make videos. Um, then I can't, oh, sure. can't predict that. But I, yeah, I see myself in the future pretty much where I'm at now. Well, thank you, Claudia, for appearing on uh, Audibly Speaking. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Rick. This was a fascinating discussion. That's it for today's episode of AudiblySpeaking.com. New podcast episodes appear on AudiblySpeaking.com approximately once every two weeks. Please subscribe to Audibly Speaking on iTunes or whatever podcast aggregator you enjoy. Until next time, this is Rick Ryman. Happy listening.